Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And as you're reading along uh, with us, or maybe you're just listening to our beautiful voices, uh, and there's a question that pops up in your head, your heart, or maybe even your spirit. We would love to take time to answer those questions as much as we can week over week at the end of our podcasts. Uh, and so you can send those those questions in two forms for us. One is an email. The email address is infogrove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line. It's a podcast question. Uh, or you can direct message our Grove Church Facebook page. We are the Grove Church in Washington State. Uh, and you can direct message us those questions there as well. We had a, we had another someone message the church about the wrong Grove Church because it was like, hey, what food trucks are going to be at the event tonight? And I was like, what food? Um, I'll, t- I'll got, take a food truck at an event. That what event? Invite oh. which 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 Grove Church? Where? That's true. Hey, whatever. Did gro- you find out what state it's in? Whatever Grove Church is doing the food truck event. Uh, sounds, hit me up. Sounds awesome. Let me know. Oh man! All right. Well, this week we are wrapping up Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, and that's the last time I'm going to say that for a long time. <laughs> Isn't this the word you have Til issues ne- with for whatever reason? Yeah, it's Deuteronomy and Gethsemane. Gethsemane. The, that's what it oh is. Oh my gosh, those two just get. And of course, we'll. I'm sure Gethsemane is going to come up a couple times through the rest of the year, but. Deuteron- Deuteronomy <laughs> is coming to a close. All right, well, let's get started. Um, we're doing chapters 29 through 34, and that takes us through the end of the book. In chapter 29, Moses begins his third and final speech to the people of Israel. Remember, Deuteronomy is kind of made up of multiple of these speeches. Um, and just, I mean, this is going to sound like I'm just repeating myself. He implores the people to remember everything that Yahweh has done and to stand by his covenant with the nation. So, That's new. Yeah, and it's it's funny because I think it's really the theme. It's the theme of the book, but it's also the theme of most of the old covenant is like, hey, like God has done incredible things. Why do you keep running to idols? Like, and I, I always come back to it, but remember that the people of Israel saw the 10 plagues. They saw the Red Sea split open. They walked through it. And then within a couple of months, they were like, you know what we should worship is that golden cow. Um that they made themselves, or you know, you know, that maybe they made themselves. According to Aaron, it just kind <laughs> it of just kind of popped out. Just okay. for, and when I say Aaron, I mean not my no, no, co-host. I, I said it, yeah, the no, high priest of Israel. Um, it just kind of popped out. It was calf. And I think I think it goes to show two things. I think number one, we oftentimes think of, especially the biblical characters of early Israel, as being modern day Christians, if that makes sense. But no, it's it's God taking. Um, I'm trying to think of the the right way to say this, but he he's taking tribal people and he's making them into his people. And so of course they have the understandings, the understanding of gods and idols and kind of the pantheons and mythologies of the people of their day. They're not like modern day Christians or even um, the Jews who would be like the post-exilic Jews who come back and they're like, okay, I get it. No more of this idol stuff, at least for the most part. Uh, No, these are very much people who are breaking away generation after generation of idol worship, even after being in Egypt as long as they were. That's just the world that they lived in. It wasn't that you had loyalty to the one true God. You just had loyalty. There's a bunch of gods, you know, and maybe I have a favorite, you know, it's like superheroes almost. Like I have my favorite superhero, but really, you know, I'm loyal to the Avengers or whatever it is. So, or DC, if that's what you're into. DC, The Justice League. Marvel, let's go. Anyway, sorry, this is a whole big thing. Big theme in Deuteronomy is remembering what God has done and teaching the future generations to not make the same mistakes as yeah. the generations of the past. And of course, 
that's not going to happen. So, I mean, you know, they do pretty good for a little bit here, but then, but then we get to, we get to Joshua. <laughs> a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Joshua is kind of like, Hey, for the most part, you know, we'll forget about AI, but for the most part, Joshua triumphs, good deal. And then we get to judges and we're like, what are you doing? People? What just happened? Yeah. All right. But well, that's getting, that's way, coming. Yeah. It's getting way Spoilers. ahead of ourselves. Uh, chapter 30, Moses is, uh, Moses communicates a promise of God to Israel. So this I thought was just really cool. So I wanted to read this. Uh, and this is chapter 30 verses one through six. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, and your children obey his voice in all that I command you today with all of your heart and with all of your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord will the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you a more prosperous and numer- more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And so it's in the one sense saying, if you do these things, God will protect you. God mm-hmm. will be with you. But I think it also has this. It, it, it just reeks of the rest of the old covenant where it says, and when you return to the Lord, he will gather you back. And that's what we see in judges when they're getting attacked and they return to God and he has mercy and he gathers them back. Uh, and then again, we talk about after Israel and Judah fall and Jerusalem is, um, you know, seized for the first time and the people scatter, what does God do? Well, he brings them back. And that's what we see in Ezra and Nehemiah. So really, I just think it's, it's powerful promises of God there. Uh, In chapter 31, we see who will succeed Moses as leader. And here's the deal. Obviously, we all know this because he's got a book of the Bible named after him. But (laughs) if if we were watching this movie with no context of the rest of scripture, I feel like it would actually be like, is it Joshua? Is it Caleb? Who's going to do this? And honestly, from everything we've read, I would have thought Caleb. Caleb seems like the guy who would have led. But no, uh, the Lord picks Joshua. And so we read this in chapter 31. So Moses continued to speak these words to all of Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. Hey. Well done, sir. Happy birthday, Moses. I I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan, which is the river. The Lord your God himself will go before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did in uh, Sihon and Og and the king of the Amorites and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you and you shall do to them to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. That's going to come up later. Uh, do Do not fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in, all the, in the sight of all of Israel, be strong and courageous. Oh, man. Again, that's going to keep coming up. For you shall go with this people into the land that the, Lord has, that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord your God who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And it's funny because I think a lot of times we read this as Joshua being really self-conscious. And I've heard it taught that way before where, you know, Joshua just was really unsure of himself and he's following Moses and God keeps commanding him to be strong and courageous, but I think, which I think may be a part of it. But also I think it's just remembering that what was the big failure of the people of Israel? 
that they weren't courageous, that they got to the promised land, they saw it, they spied it out, and Joshua and Caleb were the only people who thought, no, no, we, we, have, we have freaking Yahweh on yeah. our side. I don't know if that's flippant to say it that way, but we have the creator- <laughs> might You might have just offended someone, Yeah, we have so the, I apologize for heaven. We have the creator of the universe, the one true God, the Almighty on our side. Of course, we can take Canaan. They're the only ones who thought this. The their fathers were not strong or courageous. And because of that, only Joshua and Caleb from that generation will actually be able to enter yeah. in. So I think the strong and courageous thing is just as much a reminder to the people of Israel to not fall into the sins of their fathers as it is to Joshua the man. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, after that, we get the law read again. So, I mean. We're going to read that right now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. And then Joshua is officially commissioned as... I don't know, El Presidente, um, whatever, whatever he called, whatever the title was for the leader of Israel. Um, yeah, there's Generalissimo. There's some good There's some good titles out there that we just don't use enough today. Uh, chapter 32 is a poetic section called The Song of Moses. Um, I, I, I'm, I've become a sucker for biblical poetry, especially after like just deep diving into Job. I think, I don't know, and maybe this is just me, but I used to always skip it. Like when I was doing the Bible reading plan. I just kind of like skim through it, but now it's like, and maybe it's just I mean, when you get old, you get a little bit more like into reading poetry in general, but now I'm like, oh, this is really good. Like this is good stuff. So it, it tells the history of Yahweh choosing the people of Israel and all of the glory of Yahweh through the things that he has done. Um, and then again, we can see how important it is for Moses to remind this generation to not make the same mistakes of the last. I feel, I feel like a broken record, but that really is like- Oh, it's so true. That's a major theme of this book. Uh, after the song, we get this passage. That very day, the Lord spoke to Moses and he said, go up to this mountain of Abram, Mount Nebo, not, oh my goodness, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab opposite Jericho and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession and die on the mountain, which you go up. Well, that's a downer and be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah in the, in the wilderness of Zen, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. So, yeah, kind of a bummer. So you get this whole passage of Moses talking about the glory of God, reminding the people about the glory of God, reminding them of what they're about to take hold mm -hmm. of. And then we get the sobering rem reminder that even Moses, who is a just a titan of the faith in terms of like the, you know the, the the human characters of the Old Testament, he is one of the pillars of that. Um, but he is not allowed to take hold of the thing which he started the yeah. journey on. And I think we talked about this last week or the week before, but it's very similar to David, where David again, another one of those pillars of the Old Testament, is never actually able to build the temple. He he hits his son Solomon, who follows him and does that. And in this sense, it's not Moses' son, but it is the person who follows him. Joshua is the one who begins that uh, that process of taking the promised land. Yeah, and I think it's a really sobering uh, just picture for. I mean, I know you said Moses is like the pillar of faith, but I mean, think of all the high moments. Like, think of all the things that Moses has endured to to then be brought up to this mountain and and being told, "Hey, you're." You're gonna you're gonna die. Like this is it. It's almost a a Moses had not one moment. Like there wasn't just this one moment that caused Moses to to be robbed of the of the promise of of the promised land. Right. It it it, it was a he wasn't always he was just an angry dude. Like I I have a book by Charles Swindoll that documents Moses' life. But one of his biggest issues was anger. He reacted in anger. Yeah. Often and so 
Uh, but this was that moment where it's, hey, you broke faith. You didn't trust me. You didn't do what I asked you to. And that's that was the that was the thing that robbed him of the opportunity. So it kind of is a a uh, was a scarlet letter. That's the word I was looking oh. for. A scarlet letter, and for Moses, and this is this is his last. Like he's known for this at the end of his life, so to speak. And we know we can see his picture, his life, and a bigger picture totality right. in total is a better way to say it. But that's a good literature poll. I like it. Hey, I have my moments, bro. Um, so. m- moving forward here, in a parallel to the death of Jacob. So remember when back this is mm-hmm. I mean way back in Genesis, Jacob dies, and what's one of the last things he does? Well, he blesses all of his sons. Um, well, and two grandsons, and then. <laughs> Hey, all of his sons. If your kids aren't Joseph's sons, <laughs> sucks to be you. So wow, just shots fired, just bro. Joseph's sons get that blessing. Uh, but Moses, when he knows he's about to die, he's literally about to go up to the mountain to die. Mm-hmm. He takes time to bless all of the tribes of Israel. So we're not going to read through it because obviously we can't just talk about everything. But it's a good passage as well. Which I think that's really cool too, because how many times did we, even through the wilderness journey, that Moses complain about God's people? Yeah, it's true. He, I mean, he he was. It's your people that have caused this. Like you've given me the stiff-necked people. It's it was the, these massive laments and 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 frustrations. But at the end of it, Moses recognizes, and I think it's also humbling. I think when God says, "Hey, go to this mountain," it's it's a humbling moment of clarity and sincerity. Like God, you still see every piece of it. You know, it's, and it's a disappointment that he doesn't get to go in the promised land, but he gets to see it from a distance. And I think the, the simple fact that he got to bless and he, he chose to bless, and I think it was part of that, that in, inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so, but he ble- I think it was a really cool redemptive yeah. and, and reconciliatory moment too. No, that's very true. Uh, and then we get this little, remember if we, when we talked about the Pentateuch, we said that Moses probably wrote all of it except for one tiny section. This is that section, listener. So <laughs> in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 34, we get this. I'm just going to read the whole chapter. It's not very long. But it says, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite of Jericho. And the Lord showed him the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the Negeb and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. I, I, I want to pause there for a sec, because I actually do think this is a really beautiful moment of even if Moses doesn't get to take hold of it, God shows him everything. Um, and obviously, this is a supernatural thing. It's not as if Moses has a view of all of modern day Israel from this one mountain. Like, no, God is, uh, whether it's through visions or whether he's actually transporting him to these places, wh- whatever is going on here, God is showing him a picture of the land that he's going to take possession of. And it reminds me of, this is a really kind of silly analogy maybe, but um, there's a show I watched that was about um, the Franklin Expedition, which is this group of men who were trying to find a way through Northern Canada called the Northwest Passage. And their ships end up getting stuck. They end up, they all die. It's like kind of this famous um, mystery of history if is what happened to these ships and what happened to all these men. But one of the ending scenes of the show is one of the guy who, one of the guys who is just, he's dying. He's on his way out that he climbs up this snow ridden mountain and he sees in front of him, the Northwest passage. He sees the way through. And then he kind of just like dies smiling, seeing that like this thing that they were looking for exists, even if they didn't get to it. And I feel like that's kind of what's happening with Moses here is God is giving him this mercy of, even though he doesn't get to go, he gets to see all of it. And he gets to see the land that his, uh, descendants will be able to occupy. Well, well I, I guess think, not Moses' descendants, but the people of Israel. Yeah, but I think it's it's also, I mean, I go back to even, I almost want to like pull back something I said even earlier, just a few seconds ago, but like, it's so easy to view 
that instance and try and picture ourselves in Moses' shoes. And I feel like sometimes we come from a negative, like, and like a grumpy, like, well, shoot, man, God's punishing me. I can't go to the promised land. But there is something beautiful and something significant about that moment. I think you're right. I, yeah. I, I love the, the the picture and the in the the connection to that Franklin expedition. But there is something to be said about the fulfillment of God's promise. It's it's the for me, it's Simeon. And with the the promise of the Messiah that we that we read about in the oh, Gospels, yeah, yeah. and it's this reaction in Luke and this the celebration in Luke where Simeon's like, "I can now die. I've seen the fulfillment of God's promise." When he sees baby Jesus, when he sees baby yeah. Jesus, yeah, sorry, um, and he he sees Jesus in the temple. And he's like, "I can now fo- I can now die because God, you promised me this." Um, and he got to hold and see baby Jesus, and so I think there is something redemptive and powerful. Uh, as I continue to think about it, like in that moment of Moses's life, this this peace and this joy and this celebratory, I, I can die. Right. I, I, I've I've completed. I've fought the good fight of faith to pull into the New Testament. Ooh. Right. I think it's that tension and that not that tension that that beautiful encounter of God's fulfillment and promise. I think I would say that's probably more Moses's response and reaction because yes, he was an angry dude at times, <laughs> um, but he wanted God's people to be and experience everything God had for him. And so I think that's the, that's the powerful picture there. Yeah. Well, I, I love the Simeon analogy because it's, you're right. It's he, Simeon doesn't actually get to see the finished work of Christ. No. He just sees that, oh, he's here and he's good to go. Well, and he just sees a baby. And like, that's right. the other, like, not to jump into Luke at all, but like he sees a baby and the whole, like, it's this moment, the Holy Spirit's like, boom, there. And he's like, well, wait a minute. My eyes have seen the Lord, yeah. the salvation of, of God's people. Like my eyes have seen it finally. So you're yeah. in a more, you're in a more holy mood today because my mind went to the Franklin expedition. Yours went to the Gospels. Oh, you listen, go. you're you're uh, a genius of intellect. You're more of an encyclopedia type person. I'm I just remember Not Bible true. stories. So. All right, verse five. It says, uh, "So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried them. He buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial today. So yeah, Yahweh Himself actually buries Moses, which is which is cool." Uh, Moses was, is, I love this. I love this line. Moses is 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated, which I just think is a, it's a really cool description of what we should all hope to be when we reach old age and are, and are ready to go. Um, also not to always bring Job into things, but Job is, <laughs> Job is described as having his eyes dimmed with, with grief. So there you go. Um, <laughs> At the end, the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of of the spirit and of wisdom. Sorry, and full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him, and he did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there had not arisen a prophet since in Israel, like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, which, oh man, that's a cool line too. Uh, None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all of his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. And that's how the Pentateuch comes to a close, the first five books of the Bible. It's like, and again, we even talked a little bit about like how Moses is Ultimately, he is not able to take hold of God's promise because of his own failures, but he is still greatly honored for what he mm-hmm. did, for what he did, and for the faith that he had in in God, even though he's not perfect. Because who of us are? Uh, and particularly in yeah. the Old Testament, we see a lot of really imperfect people being used by being used by God. But I just I love that in the description of of Moses. Yeah, there. it's really good. 
All right. Well, before we tr- uh, transfer over to the Psalms, we do want to remind you to remind you. What, what do we want to do? I don't know how I said that. Hey, listener, listen. If you haven't left us a five-star review yet, come on. Leave us a five-star review. I thought we were friends, Come listener. On. I thought we were pals. Uh, but no, seriously, it does help uh, grow the audience. It helps to increase this community of people reading the Bible together and get the podcast out there to more people. So if you feel so inclined, please leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen on. Yeah, let, let's just be honest. It it puts us as number one. <laughs> and that's... We're a long, and, we're a long we're, way we away become, number We one. become the first one to search. That's on the top of the search. Um, and, and it's, it's not, it's not just for our ego. Yes. We love seeing the comments. Yes. We love hearing the reports and even the testimonies of how, uh, you've been encouraged and challenged and you've encouraged us. Uh, so it, it is about growing that community, but the more comments, the more likes, the more reviews, um, are the better off for, for the podcast as a whole. So, uh, go ahead and do that. Uh, would love for you to take time to do that. It takes all of 30 seconds if you're on Apple podcasts, but, uh, I understand. So, uh, Psalms, we hit, we're going to hit a ton of Psalms this week. Um, we also will just so you know, and I, I referenced this last week, we're going to wrap up first Corinthians this week. Um, but I, I wrapped up that book last week, so we didn't jump into that this week. We're going to read a ton of Psalms. Um, I don't, I don't even know how many off the top of my head. I think it was like eight or nine. Uh, it's a good chunk this yeah, week. So, uh, I'm going to, just like we've done in the past, especially when we know we have a lot of content to work through, I'm just going to rapid fire these things. Uh, I'm not going to read any of the Psalms this week, so I'm just going to let you enjoy them. But I did want to give you kind of a quick overview uh, of the, not just the purpose or the theme, but also the reason behind the Psalm being, being written. And so uh, the first, and I'm going to do it in chronological order of our reading plan. So you'll feel like it jumps around, but it's going to go from the days that we're reading, the order that we're reading them. So Psalm 89 is where we're starting. Uh, and this is a community lament uh, that celebrates the Davidic kingship as a special gift of God's love to his people, and then mourns the distress in which the people have fallen uh, because they interpret that distress as God's wrath against uh, his anointed one, or in other words, the king that's in line in the line of David, who's leading in, and on the throne, leading, who's reigning on the throne in that moment. Uh, the lead too when you reign. I hope so. <laughs> Not everybody leads. Um, the hope of the psalm is in uh, the simple truth for God's people that God's steadfast love and faithfulness are a solid foundation for the promise to David. Uh, even when it feels like God has abandoned them, that there's still the steadfast love and faithfulness there. So um, that's that's the purpose and heart and thought behind Psalm 89. Uh, psalm 102 is a prayer. Uh, uh, it it has actually has a title. Not every psalm comes with a title, but this one has a title uh, called "The Prayer of the Afflicted," um, and it's simply an individual lament where the individual is pouring out his heart to God in the midst of affliction. Uh, which is again, whenever you feel afflicted or you feel like stuff's going on. Read Psalm 170 or 102, not 172. There is no 172. Uh, <laughs> Joke's Psalm, on you, listener. Yeah, right. No, it's not a joke on them. Be nice, Evan. Sorry, listener. Gosh. No. Uh, Psalm 103, hymn of praise, uh, celebrates the abundant goodness and, of, and the love of God for his people. Uh, it's the first of four psalms that will reflect on God's dealing uh, dealings with his people uh, from pe- from creation to exile. So that's kind of a fun little thing. You see a four-part hymn here um, that reflects on this, how God deals with people. Psalm 104 is a psalm that speaks, uh, it's about speaking well of God. Uh, in other words, it celebrates the way uh, that the creator order reveals God's glory uh, by providing abundantly for how, for the living things. And so it just kind of orchestrates a way that we can celebrate and speak well of God as the creator, as the the provider. Uh, we jump to Psalm 105. It's celebrating God's faithful dealings with his people. 
Uh, it's particularly this one is focusing and reflecting on episodes from the Pentateuch, which we just wrapped up with Whoa. Evan, uh, in which the people interacted with powerful foreigners who might have harmed them. In other words, Abimelech, Potiphar, Pharaoh. Uh, we see a gracious tone, a gratitude uh, behind the the, the 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 psalm here. Psalm 106 uh, is it recites a series of events from Israel's history to illustrate God's steadfast love in the face of Israel's rebellion and unfaithfulness. This is a powerful psalm. When you stop to think about the simple fact that God is steadfast, it, it brings to mind the New Testament verse where it says, "In our, I don't know if, if this is even the verse actually. Now that I'm thinking about it, uh, where we have been unfaithful, He has been faithful." Um, and it's a New Testament truth and a principle, and I can't remember it, it, it's tied into Paul's writings or not off the top of my head. So, uh, but where he is, where he is faithful in the midst of our faithlessness. Um, so Psalm 106 uh, will recite that and draw our attention and hearts back to that. Psalm 107, uh, members of the community together uh, will call on one another to give thanks for God's enduring steadfast love. Um, again, he's shown uh, not only to the people as individuals, but the whole community uh, and, and specific members as well. Is that the one that's like, his love endures forever? There's a lot of Psalms that carry that, but that's not, um, I don't know if it's that specific one. Uh, I can't think about it because now I'm thinking about like Psalm 136. There's a few. I was thinking there's one that's like specifically like after every The line. song. Yeah. yeah. That, so Psalm 136 talks about his love endures forever, um, but that's like every line. Yeah. Something oh, said his love endures forever. Something said his love endures forever. Anyways. Sorry for that sidetrack, listeners. You're good. Psalm 108. Uh, it seems to be here that David created this community lament by combining material from two other psalms, uh, specific with small variations. So we see specifically the individual lament of Psalm 57, as well as the community lament of Psalm 60. He combines them two here uh, with a little bit of, of change. Uh, but in essence, the idea is in the midst of a dangerous situation, you'll find the members singing uh, this song to express their confident hope and thanking God of thanking God, God, you are faithful. You're going to provide. You see that uh, combination there. A remix, if you will. There you go. Yeah. Or a medley. A mashup. We'll call it mashup. Boom. But yes, a medley. Psalm 68 will be the next song we read after uh, the 102 to 108 uh, gauntlet. Psalm 68 is the psalm that where God's people celebrate his continued care and protection for, for Israel, remembering uh, how God led them through the wilderness into their inheritance again, Deuteronomy ties, the Pentateuch ties, um, and daily bears his people up. In other words, he, he so continues to sustain and support. That's what Psalm 68. Then we'll jump to Psalm 31, which is a lament that seeks help from God for a faithful person worn out by trouble and beset by his enemies who want to do him harm. Uh, so it's another lament crying out for God for help. Psalm 111 is next. That's a hymn of praise celebrating the great works the Lord has done for his people and calling them to be his and caring for them and in protecting them. And then Psalm 113 will be the last Psalm we read this week. Uh, and this is a hymn of praise as well, uh, which I'm thankful we're, we're ending the week in Psalms of praise and not Psalms of always lament that or nice. darkness. Uh, but hymn, it's a hymn of praise uh, that celebrates the way in which the great and majestic God who rules over all takes notice of the lowly. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a fun way to end uh, the reading of Psalms this week. Boom. There you go. Well, so I, that's the Psalms. Aaron, I don't know this for sure, but I, I feel fairly confident in saying that's probably the most Psalms that we'll be doing in a week. So I don't want to promise anything because yeah. I thought the last time I ran through a gauntlet of Psalms. Hey, way to go. That was, that was some prime, some prime gauntlet running right there. Uh, well, this week we're also kicking off the book of Joshua, and Joshua is the first of the historical books in the Old Testament. So this would be Joshua, Judges, Ruth, uh, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are all kind of, they tell the story from essentially 
Joshua going into the promised land with the people of Israel, all the way to Esther, who is, although she's not canonically, that's not the canonically last book, it would be Nehemiah, isn't it? Anyway, sorry, the post-exilic period that's is correct. in the end there. So uh, the other thing, and this is going to make you real happy, listener, these are some of the easiest books in the Bible to read <laughs> because they are they are pure story. There's no poetry or there's very little poetry. Um, there's not very many sections of the law. It's very much just like this happened, this happened, this happened. It's, yeah. it's very easy to follow. Yeah, the narrative side of it. Absolutely. Uh, Joshua... Reads much more as a contemporary account than, say, like Judges does. And so that kind of leads us to think that it was written about the time that this happened. Judges reads very much like telling about things that happened in the past in preparation for what's coming, whereas Joshua's kind of like, and then, you know, this happened. Yeah, Joshua is almost. It's not first person per se, but Judges, it's almost like a book of history. Right. It's, you're reflecting back on a time, a period of time. Joshua is written as if, just like you said, is in, in the time, present time it, it is. Yeah. So if we, had, if we had to guess, we would honestly peg it probably as being written probably right after the end of Joshua, kind of all this gets written down. The end of Deuteronomy, um, you mean? The end, well, no, the end of the book of Joshua. Oh, got it, got it, yeah. got it, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry. Or, you know, if I think the farthest you would date it is a few generations into the future during the period of the judges. This is written down to remind the people of Israel of what happened. Uh, and then this week we are going to be focusing on uh, the preparation section. So the whole book of Joshua is about taking hold of the land that God promised and then kind of the consequences and the different things that happened there. Um, and then it's also an introduction, an introduction, an introduction, introduction. to the, the period of the judges, which is, I mean, just if you want to get frustrated <laughs> with the people of Israel, wait, wait till you get to judges. Listen, there's some epic stories in the book also of Judges. True. Let yeah. me be honest. Okay. It's frustrating. But at least it's a good story. Judges and Kings. <laughs> From an both, entertainment standpoint. Yeah. Judges and Kings both have this horrible problem. And problem is a strong word because obviously it's it's God's word. It's written the way it is for a reason. Uh, but they always skip over the things that sound really interesting. Because in Judges, there's like, and then that guy killed a thousand Philistines in a mountain pass with a spear. Tell Moving me more. on. Yeah. It's like, tell me more. Or like in Kings, it's like, and then Abishai killed nine giants with a sword. Anyway, I'm like, wait, what? Whoa! Yep. We're skipping. Then Ben and I climbed down in a pit with a snowy, or yeah. with a lion on a snowy day. Yeah, and then he killed it with his bare hands, and that's all we hear. Okay, Where does come it on. snow in the Middle East? Anyways. Uh, who knows? Just kidding. All right. Anyway. Uh, so Joshua. We're focusing on the first five chapters. We're actually reading the first four, but I'm just going to include the fifth because it's kind of, you know, it doesn't make sense to kind of recap next week. In uh, Joshua 1, he takes command of the people, and he's reminded over and over again to what? That's right. Be strong and courageous, because that is a big theme, especially in the beginning of Joshua. Um, even when he's making a speech to the people, which I never caught this before, but we'll hear what we'll talk about. And they answered Joshua. So this is the people of Israel after he has made a speech. All that you have commanded us, we will do. And whatever you send and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so will we obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandments and disobeys your words, whatever you command shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So that's the people of Israel yeah. telling that to Joshua, which I, I don't know. In my head, I always took those as it's God, it's speaking, God to speaking to Joshua or it's Moses speaking to Joshua. But this one, it's actually like the people. And I also love it because it does show the difference between the previous generation and this generation where they're the ones saying like, hey, listen, leader, be strong and courageous because we are ready to go. We will follow you all the way into Jericho and beyond. So I don't, I'm, I'm getting hyped. These guys are great. So... Way to not be like your fathers this generation. <laughs> uh, and also, I feel like we've just spent so much time 
complaining about the previous generation because that's what the books have been like yeah. essentially from numbers to deuteronomy it's all just complaining about the the failures of the previous generations and now we finally get to see hey what's going to happen when the people actually for the most part obey god and we're going to see that in this book uh so the first city that the israel israelites would take is jericho and i mean come on Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. We all we all know what happened there, or at least you know maybe you do. Uh, if you grew up in the church, if you grew up in the church, you, you know if you the didn't, song. You're going to enjoy the Book of Joshua, and you're going to enjoy the first. That's battle true. Together. Yeah, no spoilers, but it's going to be pretty cool. Uh, Joshua sends some spies in. Apparently, you know maybe he just learned from when him and Caleb and those other ten schmucks did it. Like he's like, hey, we should we should do this again. Uh, who and then these two spies would be hidden by. And also, I mean, this isn't. This is completely off topic, but I wonder if he sent in two just because like we don't need to send in 12 because that didn't go we, that didn't go well last time. We just need two. Um, they would be hidden by a prostitute named Rahab. And because of her bravery in saving these men's lives, she and her family would be spared the coming destruction of the city. So she used to hang a uh, scarlet rope out of her window. And then whenever uh, – Essentially, they tell her like, yeah, Yahweh is coming with his armies and his people and the city is not going to be here very much longer and they make a way for her to be able to be saved. Um, she would eventually join Israel. We're not explicitly told this, but we know from genealogies that yeah. she is an ancestor of both David and Jesus. So obviously it's not like she just lived in that lone house yeah, in Jericho yeah. forever. She, she clearly joined Israel and became and became Jewish and, and worshiped Yahweh mm-hmm. as well. So really cool there. Also really cool that, and this is spoken of pretty often, but um, that she is a prostitute. So she's living a an objectively sinful life and her very vocation is a sinful thing. And yet through her bravery and the fact that she's willing to repent and, and turn to God, she becomes an ancestor of Jesus, yeah. which is just really cool. Like yeah. when you read through that genealogy, you're like, that stands out. So, um, yeah, and he's talking about the genealogy in the Gospels. Sorry, so yeah. we'll, we'll see that in the Gospels, and that's and and that's where we 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 have the connection of Rahab, and she's not just a blip in the story, but she actually actually a very strong piece um, into the genealogy of Christ. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we get to this miracle, which is, uh, hey, let's see if this sounds familiar to another miracle that happened a little bit earlier. Uh, it says, the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you, which apparently was a big, you know, that was a big worry, which I get it, you know, because they did 400 years of slavery and then God is with Moses. Moses brings them out. They don't exactly want to return back to the whole, you know, hey, like that slavery thing. I mean, I guess they didn't really experience it, but they're like, from what we hear, that was a real bummer. So let's not, let's <laughs> yeah. not go back. Uh, and as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, which again is the big river that they have to cross in order to get into Canaan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord, your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, great name, the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth also great title, uh, is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each man, from each tribe, a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, 
the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out their tents to pass over the Jordan, the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priest bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows it all of its banks throughout the time of harvest. Hey, thanks for that little helpful note there, <laughs> author of Joshua. Uh, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. At uh, Very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, uh, and those flowing down towards the Sea of Arabia, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the ark and all of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all of Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. And you can tell this is a different author because the description of this miracle is very different from the one that we get in Exodus. But it's the same miracle as the Red Sea. God parts the waters of the river Jordan. All of the people of Israel walk through, and then the priests follow, and then the river goes back to normal. So it's, you know, boats. Who needs them? Bridges, those are a pain. God's going to show his His power and his glory right now. And he's also going to show his favor on Joshua. Yep. Uh, in chapter four, a memorial is built to commemorate this miracle, and they begin to march towards Jericho. So, hey, you know what? Good work. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's, let's honor God and worship God for what he's done. Um, and then in chapter five, a new generation of Israelites is circumcised, and the people celebrate Passover, which... This must have actually been a really meaningful Passover because this is the first Passover they will have celebrated in the land that God promised them. So, and again, they haven't really, true. yeah, they haven't conquered anything yet, but they're actually, they crossed the river. They're in, <laughs> like yep. this is, this is the land. So that, that must've been really cool. It almost brings a really, really cool, probably a really cool, cool close to the previous chapter through their wanderings of 40 years in the wilderness and then they cross the Jordan and then it's done. It's now the, it's almost like the end of a chapter, the beginning of the next, it's the fulfillment and the start as the fulfillment of God's promise, but the start of that provision. Right. Uh, and so I, th- I mean, I would imagine that would be kind of a cool thing, but who knows? And the, it's funny because the first Passover is followed very quickly by the parting of the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. And now the first Passover in the land of God's promise is immediately, immediately follows the parting of the Jordan River. So cool beans. Uh, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> anyway. I got no words. No, man. And then finally, uh, Jericho is about to be attacked and we get this scene. So, and this is kind of one of the famous ones. And then next week we'll get into the action listener. Don't worry. Uh, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And he said, oh, sorry. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. And he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandals off of your feet for the place you are standing on is holy. And Joshua did so. All right, we'll see how that goes next week. That's what we call in the business a cliffhanger, listeners. So uh, yeah, the angel of the Lord comes before Joshua. I also love, he says, are you for us or adversaries? And he just says, no. Like, that's nope. not, that is not the way that you're having man's perspective. That is not God's perspective. False. So yeah, false bears and beats. Battlestar Galactica. Um, all right, so now we're going to jump into our final section today. 
Second Corinthians. Yes. We, uh, so as I said, we've wrapped up First Corinthians. Uh, actually, this week we will finish reading it, but I wrapped up that book last week, and then we're jumping into the sec- second uh, letter that we have that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. Uh, and just to give you a little bit of, uh, of history and context, which I thought was really cool and kind of important to, to understand in regards to what Paul is addressing and dealing with, um, we already know that the church has been dysfunctional. We already know the first letter is really trying to provide clarity, teaching, and direction about the proper uh, way that a church, a Christian church should operate in light of the gospel. Uh, and so that's the, the, the majority of 1 Corinthians. That's what Paul is addressing and handling. Um, and, and one of the things that I read as we were jumping into this second book is uh, if we didn't, if you didn't know this, this is going to tickle Evans uh, fancy because he likes the history of stuff. But Corinth was destroyed in 146 BC by the Romans and then was in, uninhabited for 100 years. Uh, and then in 444 BC, sorry, 44 BC, Julius Caesar rebuilt it. And so then Paul is, is estimated to have visited actually Corinth between 49 and 50 AD. Uh, so there really was about only 80 years of existence. Uh, but the population was about 80,000 people. For a little bit of context, uh, our city of Marysville is about 77,000 last time I, I checked uh, as far as the city limits is concerned. Now, there's a bunch of more people outlying areas. I think 117,000 people within a certain window that we have five miles from the church, I believe. Um, but it was it was a very robust city. Uh, it actually is. It became the most the third most important city of the Roman Empire behind Alexandria and then the city of Rome itself. This is Corinth, not this Marysville. This is Corinth, yes, not Marysville. <laughs> in, case, in case you needed that clarity. Um, so it's a pretty significant place. I mean, only 80 years of life um, since the city was rebuilt, 80,000 people show up. And so it's a very young city. It hasn't fully established culture. It has just has this run and do whatever you want. The one thing that was a single most important factor for status and respect in Corinth was wealth. And so if you didn't have wealth, you were you had low status, low, low favor, low respect. Um, and so being that Corinthians was a first Corinthians dealt with a lot of the dysfunction of the church. We see second Corinthians actually takes on a different tone, a different side. Um, Paul, uh, I, th- this is so fast. It's fascinating to me when I read it. Um, I, I spent not even intentionally for this podcast episode, but I spent the, the a part of the beginning of this year working through first and second Corinthians. And I come to realize that as I'm reading second Corinthians is Paul's, uh, response to his, um, to the, the offense he took from Corinth. Uh, we, we read in first Corinthians, the super apostles that were in essence antagonizing that Paul was addressing. We'll see it again in second Corinthians that Paul is directly mocking and calling out these quote unquote super apostles. In other words, they were questioning and calling into question Paul's authority. They were calling into question Paul's, uh, uh, what is it, his, his apostleship. Uh, and so this is what Paul's writing from. Second Corinthians is actually his letter to defend the first part of the letters, to defend his apostleship. Um, and, and so I, there's a section of, of, of a commentary that I want to read because I just think it's so, it's so crazy. Um, but we find, and we see this in chapter two, verse one, that uh, his initial visit to Corinthians was a very painful one. Um, and so this is where the, the commentary picks up. It says his authority, his apostleship was called into question. And it, and it, and if he was real, if he was for real, why did he suffer? Uh, the super apostles were making the declaration that we're not suffering. Our life is great. How can he be actually an apostle of Christ if suffering disproves his authority, his credibility? Well, that's as a an apostle. That other books of the Bible have yeah, tackled. I, I don't. I can't remember which one off the top of my head. Uh, 
So if, if he was for real, why did he suffer? And then they go on on all these questions you're going to see that Paul is going to address in his defense. Um, why was his ministry so lackluster when compared to the ministry of others? Why was his preaching so dull? Why did he change his travel plans if God was actually directing his life? Moreover, what lay behind his refusal to accept payment for his services, as most preachers at that time did? Was he act really collecting money for the poor? Why didn't Paul have letters of recommendation like the others? Why didn't they relegate them with stories about God's power in his ministry? Was it because there were none? Uh, and so then the author of the commentary writes, tragically, this attack on Paul's ministry in person had the, many of this Corinthians converts to reject him in his preaching, preaching for a different gospel. Uh, and this is the preaching of the word commentary where Kent Hughes is the chief editor um, that just presents that. And so the intent of this letter is to address the ridicule and attack he faced when he first visited Corinth. Uh, we find, this is another quote, we find this letter to be the most emotional of all the apostles' writings. Nowhere is Paul's heart so torn and exposed as in this letter. Second Corinthians bears a fierce tone of injured love, of paradoxically wounded, relentless affection. Well, and it's especially rare of, because I, I feel like you you see that side of Paul in Second Timothy. In glimpses. And, yeah, in glimpses. But it's weird. It's interesting to see this not in a personal letter, because those yeah. letters, of course, are going to be a little bit more emotional because yeah. they're written to people. Yep. This is written to the uh, to the church. Yeah. And and he and remember in First Corinthians, Paul exhibited this deep affection and father's love for the church. This is a church that he went to and helped establish. And so he has this deep love as a father would. And so when all of a sudden these super apostles have, have dissuaded his, his, his original people, his original followers of Christ, his original, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? His original children, so to speak, spiritual children, there's this deep wound. And then not just the rejection that they face because of the convincing questions that we just kind of ran through. Uh, this is what Paul is, is responding with. Uh, and so he He's writing this letter as a response to all of the accusations and all of the discredibility. And there's a moment later in the letter that the tone changes where it's no longer him defending himself, but then he goes on the attack. Um, and he actually, this is where we talk about boasting and weakness. We'll see this conversation where he thinks boasting is folly. He thinks it's foolish to boast and what he's good at. And so he, he actually starts boasting in things as a dig at the super apostle. So we'll get to that later, but we're only hitting the first three chapters this week. Um, and so it's the, it's the very beginning where he begins to, to defend his legitimacy as an apostle, uh, which the defense lasts all the way through chapter 7, verse six, 16. Um, and so we're just going to hit the first three chapters. Typical in Pauline fashion, there's always a greeting, which we see in the first two verses. Uh, we see this introduction as well, where Paul is beginning to establish uh, the heart, the tone, the theme of the letter that he will then address and carry. Uh, and then we'll see in, in, in verse 12 of chapter 1 that Paul begins his boast. Um, and what he does is what I mean by that is he's not, he's not saying, Hey, look how great I am, but he's beginning to defend very strategically and very intentionally his, why his authority doesn't need to be questioned or why, um, or the answers to the questions of his authority and his apostleship. And so he begins to boast in his relationship with the Corinthians, his conduct with the Corinthians, his integrity. He talks about the, he, in essence, he's showing that he's not manipulative or trying to persuade them. He's actually, you know, me. You've seen how I act. You know my love for you. And that's where he begins to draw from. Uh, and then he answers one of the first questions. He explains the change of plans he had. Uh, and we see this in, in chapter or verse 15, uh, all the way through the rest of, of chapter one to verse to chapter two, verse four. Uh, and so I'm going to read this real quick because again, it's just, it's Paul addressing the, com the, the questions that are being posed because he's beginning to defend his apostleship. 
And so he says this in verse 15, he says, because of this confidence, and so his confidence in what he had relationship-wise and his conduct and his integrity with the Corinthian believers, he says, I plan to come to you first so that you could have a second benefit and to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then to come to you again from Macedonia and to be helped by you on my journey to Judea. In other words, he's saying, listen, I had every intention not just to visit you once, but actually twice. I'm going to Macedonia, but I was going to visit you both way, on both sides. And you could then partner with me. And he says, now when I plan this, was I have two minds or what I plan, do I plan in a purely human way? So I say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. As God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus, Timothy, and I did not become yes or no. On the contrary, in him, it was always yes. In other words, he's just simply saying, I was going to follow. I was going to come to you. I was going, like these are not, I don't, you know me. I don't make frivolous plans. I don't, I'm not whimsical. I don't get tossed back and forth in, in desire or I don't go back on my word. And then he continues on. So, and now it is God who strengthens us. Oh, wait, no. For every one of God's promises is yes in him, which is such a great verse. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. Now it is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ, who has anointed us. He has also put a seal on us and give us a spirit of our hearts as a down payment. I call on God as my witness on my life that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. Stop for a second. Why would it be to spare the Corinthian believers? Because Paul was hurt. He was frustrated and he was ready to unload. Yeah. And and so the, the the part of the reason why he didn't, it was a good thing he didn't go back because he knew if he went back, he was going to unload out of anger and frustration and a strong rebuke. And and he didn't he, he didn't want that to be the interaction he had because he was hurt. So he sit, continues on verse 24, he says, I do not mean what that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy because you stand firm in your faith. And then he said this, in fact, I made up my mind about this. I would not come to you on another painful visit. This is where we get the first glimpse of Paul's reason for not showing up. He's like, last time I came there, I got, I got ripped to shreds and it stung and it hurt and it wasn't fun. I didn't want to do that. He's like, first, for if I cause you pain, then who would cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? I wrote this very thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy because I'm confident about all of you that my joy will also be yours. For I wrote you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not to cause you pain, but, to, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. So he's showing restraint in this moment, but he's also being transparent and open. It's very human. It is. It's very human. In a way, in a way that you don't always see Paul, which nope. is kind of interesting. And even in the, and if I'm being honest with you, I can't tell you how many times I've read through First and Second Corinthians, and I, until this year, it's like, holy cow! Like, right? Paul got ripped to shreds, man. He is hurt and wounded, uh, and so he he actually left Ephesus and went to Troas. And he was going to preach the gospel at trash, but because he was wounded, he was hurt. He was looking for Titus, but Titus never showed up. He felt abandoned in that moment. So he went to, he went to Macedonia. Titus was one of his guys, one of the encouragers, and he didn't, he didn't show up. So he went to Macedonia and he waited. And then we find out Titus later shows up and he was deeply encouraged. And it was a great, it was a great, a really good thing for Paul, but there's a reason why he didn't come back to the court to Corinth is mm -hmm. because of that. So we have this crazy thing where, where Paul's beginning his defense, but he's also not just defending himself, but he's explaining himself. This is why I didn't come to you. You hurt me. I didn't want to hurt you because no one would be there to cheer me up for the hurt I gave. No one would be there to help cheer you up. You would, 
you would actually recoil and run away. And so he's alluding to these things. He continues to defend his legitimacy in chapter three uh, on the basis where his suffering is a means by which Christians are comforted and God is made known by the world. This is how he's defending some of his legitimacy as apostle. Uh, and he does uh, this so based on the reality of the life transforming spirit being mediated through his apostolic ministry of the new covenant. In essence, chapter three, we see not only has he defended uh, well, it's kind of a combination of both. Sorry. He defended his legitimacy in chapters one and two on the basis of his sufferings, uh, that God is comforting Christians through their suffering. And then also that the, through him, that the, the, the spirit is being made known to the world, that God is being made known to the world. Then he shifts to this conversation of the spirit, this Holy spirit. He's saying the spirit of God is my validation. I don't need miracles. I don't need signs. I don't need all these wonderful things, but the Holy Spirit's work and the power of which he moves is, is the sign. And my preaching is not dull because the spirit is alive and, and transforming. And so this is the, like his justification for his life. And this is just the beginning. Uh, I want to read chapter three, one through six for a few seconds. Um, and it says this, it says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need like some letters of recommendation to you or from you? This is now a direct uh, not attack, but a direct rebuttal. So yeah. The super apostles had these letter of, letters of recommendation. They had these different uh, accolades that they were given. And he's saying, "Are we? we don't need to commend ourselves to you because you know us. Again, remember, he starts off on the conversation of you know me. You know my conduct. You know my integrity. You know me. I don't need a letter from you. You don't need a letter from someone else. It says, you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are Christ's letter delivered by us, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. This is the argument that the spirit's transforming power is legitimacy to his apostleship. He says, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence we have through Christ before God. It is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. He made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And this is the, this is the challenge that Paul is beginning to push back and saying, it's not all of these accolades that I'm being accused of. And we'll see this throughout the rest of Corinthians, uh, at least through the bulk of through 716, all of these accolades, all of these reasons that are discrediting my apostleship, they actually are failing in comparison to the proof that I have, not just in my life, but in your life. And he's appealing to them as his brothers and sisters. He's appealing to them as Corinthian believers because he's calling them back to remember that the gospel that was preached. Uh, and so we're, ju- I mean, we're just scratching the surface of this letter, uh, but I find it so fascinating. And as I, as I've read through it, and as we're going to read through it again this week and in the weeks to come, uh, just the nature with which Paul's writing, it's not a, let me teach you as a church, how to operate based upon the spirit, but let me teach, like, let me, let me rebuke and answer back the 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 questions of my integrity and my apostleship. So uh, just the beginning of it. It's I, I'm looking forward to reading it, but uh, it's pretty remarkable the difference in tone. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things where you, I don't know. This, this is true of just the the whole Bible in general. Is you can read something so many times, yeah. and then all of a sudden it just hits you in a fresh way. I love it. Uh, well, before we wrap it up for today, we did have a question come in this week, and so we wanted to answer it. And it said, "Hey guys, hey." Uh, For many years, when I read John 1, 43 through 51, I would always assume that Jesus was near the fig tree where Nathaniel was at. So actually, I'm going to read that really quick just so we know what we're talking about. So this is 
the section of John where Jesus is calling a bunch of his disciples. He calls Philip and then Philip's like, hey, bro, Nathaniel, Jesus, you should check him out. And he's like, where is he from? He's like, Nazareth. <laughs> Can anything good come from Nazareth? He's like, come and see. And then it says, uh, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Which that's a pretty high compliment. Yeah, that's a very high compliment. Boom. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So, and then he says, sorry, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven, heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So we get that, we get that passage. So this listener continues in verse 48, where Jesus uses the words, I saw you referred to Jesus displaying, oh, sorry. Oh my goodness. I'm messing this whole thing up. I would always assume that Jesus was near the fig tree where Nathaniel was at. But now after reading my brand new ESV study Bible, great job. I was waiting for you to uh, give that a shout out. I'm not sure. In verse 48, where Jesus uses the words, I saw you, uh, referred to Jesus displaying supernatural knowledge and thus identifying himself as the Messiah. It is also referenced in my new ESV study Bible <laughs> to, uh, in John 2, 24 through 25, where it says, uh, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man so is it possible that maybe nathaniel was praying or reading scriptures or maybe even meditating under the fig tree and jesus knew his thoughts from a distance okay uh so first off i think yeah very possible because i it's a for me the the whole thing of this passage it's one of those mysteries of scripture that's kind of frustrating not to know but on the other hand it's kind of it's fun to let our imaginations kind of wander on well what could have this been mm -hmm. because imagine this interaction where jesus calls nathaniel and he says because uh, Nathaniel's whole thing is, can anything good come, come from Nazareth? He's very skeptical about this guy. And then he's like, hey, before Philip got you, I saw you under that fig tree. And then Nathaniel, the next words out of Nathaniel's mouth are, you are the son of God. You are the Messiah. <laughs> so clearly something was going on under that fig tree. We don't know exactly what. Um, I've heard some people kind of reference that there's something sinful going on that uh, who knows. Um, I actually like what you're saying. And this is kind of where I land as well. But again, this is very, this is very open-handed. Like we, yeah. we're not told what's happening. Um, I think that Nathaniel was in prayer and either, either doubting something that was coming on, or it was something where clearly he was, he was meditating on something, praying on something. Um, well, maybe he was even wondering about the Messiah. And he's saying, am I going to get to see the Messiah in, in my lifetime? And then all of a sudden Jesus is, he just reveals like, yeah, Hey, I saw you go to the victory. And then all of a sudden he's like, wow. So yeah. that's kind of where I take it. I, I definitely don't think Jesus was physically nearby, I think. And again, and, and it, it, looking it, over his shoulder, I see. Right, and exactly. Mostly because, like, I mean, theoretically, that is possible. But again, you have to account for why does Jesus say, why is Jesus saying, I saw you under the fig tree, all of a sudden flip that switch in Nathaniel instantly? It's not because Jesus doesn't explain yeah. anything about the fig tree. He's just, he literally just says, Hey, I saw you earlier. So yeah. that, that seems to me to be hinting not that Jesus was looking at him from a distance, but that he supernaturally was revealing to Nathaniel that I saw you under the fig tree. I, I know you. So, um, and I, I feel like I plugged the chosen a decent chunk of time. So again, it's like it's a fictionalized retelling of the gospel. So it's not scripture, but the way they handle this scene is is really cool. I, I like the I like the path that they take it down, and the 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 way that they kind of let their imaginations imaginations go on this as well. So, and you're, you're talking this scene specifically, this scene, this this part yeah, there's this, scripture. Yeah, in season two, we see the scene of Jesus calling yeah. Nathaniel, and they you know obviously because they have to kind of. 
make it into a whole thing. So the way that they make it happen, I think is, is really cool. So there you go. I don't know if you have anything to add. No, yeah, I think it's, I, I think you see a couple of things. I think we see a glimpse of the omnipresence of God in the moment, right? Because Jesus is part of the Trinity. Which and, is a fancy word meaning that God is everywhere at all the time. Yeah, I was going to get there. Don't worry. Oh, sorry. Um, but it's, and it's, and yes, in this moment, Jesus may not be fully God because it, when he came to earth, he anyway, set that aside. Philippians shows us that, but even anyways. Um, and so you see a really, really powerful glimpse. I think you also see, you know, um, I, I think there's so many practical pieces that come out of this. Like sometimes the way God reveals things to us or speaks to us is through either vision or a dream or whatever. And not saying that God was dreaming or Jesus was dreaming in this moment, but um, it was a very deep, you know, very deep engaged thing. Like it was something that like, well, wait a minute, how could you have seen me? Like yeah. it, it, it was meant to draw a deep intrigue. And I think even a deep revelation for that moment for Nathaniel um, of who he was and who he is. Um, and I think that's why it evoked the response. And so, but you're right, it is, it is, it is an open-handed thing. We don't have a lot of understanding or clarity of uh, actually what was going on there, but I do, I do stand in the camp where I do think it is God, you know, whether Nathaniel was praying or reading scripture or whatever that looks like, um, I, I think in that moment, uh, Jesus was aware of Nathaniel and was aware of, of who he was and what he was doing and was able to then refer back to that when he actually saw Nathaniel face to face. And so it's just a really cool moment, a powerful moment, and not just God's omnipresence, which again, everywhere at once, but also his omniscience, all knowing, um, yeah. you see, you see a really divine piece, um, of, of who Jesus, uh, not just is, but, um, was in that moment too. So, well, I think it's just. Yeah, I think it. The more, the more I think about, it, the more I think there's got to be. There had to be some type of a spiritual wrestling that Nathaniel was going through. For sure. I was even thinking uh, there's there's a moment I can picture in my head right now, where all of a sudden, like I just I was faced with um, I don't know, doubts the right word, but it was just like it was just you know wrestling through my faith, and all of a sudden, like I really began. It just weighed on me, and it was a lot of prayer, um, and a lot of kind of looking toward that. But if someone came up to me and said, hey, I saw you, and I know exactly where I was, I know exactly what stupid movie I had just finished watching when all this happened. If someone came to me and said, hey, I saw you at that place right after you watched that movie, that my reaction would be very similar. Yeah. I wouldn't call them the Christ, but I'd be like, okay, what does God have to see? You know yeah. what I mean? Like, there's, Okay, I need What? Yeah, there's, some, there's something about that. So yeah. I think that's probably what's happening with Nathaniel here. Um, well, anyway. That wraps it up. It's a longer episode, listeners, so hopefully you enjoyed it. But that wraps it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Um, as a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we are not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find all of our other podcasts and resources on our website, grove.church. Um, and if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does financially, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. But thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.